Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast, the world of comics and graphic novels, recorded at the offices of Publishers Weekly in New York City. I'm Heidi McDonald. I am co-editor of PW Comics World, as well as the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. Check us out at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Also on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com and on Twitter at pwcomicsworld. On this week's episode of More to Come, we'll be talking about July's record-breaking sales. Also, Guardians of the Galaxy. What does it mean for comics? Um, and Studio Ghibli. Are they still here? Also, the world of poor and depressed cartoonists. And, of course, Kate with the briefs. And yes, there's a reason why I'm doing this intro this week instead of Calvin. It's because Kate and I have taken over the podcast this week. Sorry, Calvin. Calvin is currently at an undisclosed location, <laughs> hidden far away from the nasty, scary world of comics yes. news. Far from the combating crowd. Beach time for Calvin. But yeah, I understand that we will be hearing from him in a phoned in uh update from his undisclosed location so yes pw comics world more to come fans you will not be totally calvinist calvinless this week but let's see if kate and i can possibly do this by ourselves so i think we'll be good all right we're good to go all right let's get right to it this month last month july sales topping the charts behind rocket raccoon i think we'll be talking about rocket raccoon a lot i actually time. have been reading rocket raccoon and it's awesome yes well scotty young is awesome he but is he's the perfect man for it. anyway july uh was a great month for comic sales it kind of reversed some of the uh negative trends we've been seeing for the first six months of the year led by rocket raccoon i think if you had sat down any comics executive a year ago and said one day rocket raccoon will be the number one selling comic in the industry no one would have believed you but it is um and some interesting things this month uh marvel still leading uh dc image under 10 percent again but the thing that really broke records this month was the sheer number of comics being shipped uh, a record-breaking number of uh let's see 891 according to comicron uh, including variant covers, of course, and so on. So, I don't know. Kate, you know, you read periodical comics. Still. Frequently. Are there too many periodical comics? Well, they're not. Marvel and DC have scaled back a little bit from a couple of years ago when they were at their worst of having, like, five Thor titles or something. Colon so, comics. Yeah, where it's hard to tell which comic about that character is the one you want, so you just give up. They're a little better about that right now, but... Um, there's still a lot of um, cannibalizing the market for specific things that they think are popular. Like, there's a limit to how many Guardians of the Galaxy comics people are going to follow that all say Guardians of the Galaxy on the cover. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think they need to sort that out a bit more. Yeah. Because well, it's confusing to consumers, and it, I don't think it really boosts sales. It is. And, you know, there's a lot more. Uh, again, there's a lot more information floating around out there about some books selling better in digital. Uh, Ms. Marvel is a book that uh, I've heard this about and a couple of others at other publishers. And uh, I think it's a time of great – great, like, people don't really know what's happening right now. They well, don't know really where the next big thing is going to be. I actually – I've been reading about um, which comics are doing really well in digital. And they seem to be things that have appeal with a younger tech-savvy audience who aren't 
necessarily hardcore traditional comic fans. So people who don't even know where their local comic book store right. are are perfectly willing to download the Comixology app or whatever other app and are hooked in enough to know to do it, and then they download it. Right. So right. Like something like 25% of all sales of Saga are digital now. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't surprise me. And I think that's actually a hopeful sign for the market. I think it is as well. And I mean, I think what we're just seeing is a lot of channels coming coming through right now. And the fact that July was a big month. Um, I mean, I think there's some... The, what has troubled some observers is that there's fewer best-selling books, but the long tail is a lot stronger. Like, there's a lot more books that are in the, the, the lowest-selling book on the top 300 sold 6,000 copies. Like, uh, a few years ago, that would have been, like, the number 250 books. So we're seeing a lot of growth at the bottom end. And I think... It speaks to the widening audience that we've been talking about. Well, you know, speaking of, of this end of Guardians of the Galaxy, um, the sales are really up on um, trades of mm-hmm. back issues. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and not just one trade, not just whichever one the retailers are putting on the front table, but people are, like, looking it up, buying that one. So I think um, it's really, with the long tail and with things staying in print, it's a really good time for people's back catalogs yes. of stuff that are strong sellers or have become of interest again for whatever reason. Um, and speaking of things <laughs> that are selling from back catalogs, <laughs> we'll hear more about that in our depressed poor cartoonist yes, section. Yes, yes, Well, maybe we will. But uh, anyway, well, you know, we keep talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and uh, I, I think we're going yeah, to need to give it its due. I think we are. And, you know, it's really a game changer in so many ways. I mean, it's just like, you know, take that for Marvel Studios to say they took this obscure franchise. It's like I said in my review, um, you know, you, not too many people in our world walked around and when you asked them, oh, what do you read? Said, I am a Guardian of the Galaxy fan. Well, I mean, I was one of these few people, and even I, as someone who loved... Okay, I'm not going to claim cred that I don't have. I started reading it in 2008, so, you know, I'm I'm not... I'm not educated in the 1970s. But, but, Guardians but let of the me Galaxy. just point out that's when uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning relaunched it, right? Relaunched it with, with the this, current yes, cast. Yes. So I was there from the beginning of the current cast, but yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, and I loved it, and I owned all the issues. But I was like, are you sure this is a good idea for a movie? Like, seriously, are you sure this is a good idea mm-hmm. for a movie? Um, there's actually a recording of me saying pretty much exactly yeah. those words on this podcast. Uh, and I was wrong. Well, I was wrong. You know, I will admit that well, I was wrong. You know, this is why we're the best podcast, because we're open and we're not defensive. Um, Kate, why do you think, what do you think are the elements that have made Guardians such a huge hit? Well, I will explain why I didn't think it would do well, and I will explain why I think it did do well. When I was thinking about it at first, when we heard the announcement, um, I felt that, one, it would be very expensive to make. And, and it was, but... It yeah. was, but not as much more expensive to make than a normal Marvel movie than exactly. you'd think, because the price of CGI has gone down. Um, secondly, I thought the fact that no one had ever freaking heard of it would hurt it. Answer, no, <laughs> no, that doesn't matter. Apparently, it does not matter that no one has heard of it, and in fact, it kind of helps because a lot of people were talking about how fresh it was and how it wasn't a sequel or a remake of anything, which... It kind of was an adaptation of a comic, but if it makes it feel fresher to you that you've never read the right. comic, go for it. Right, right. Um, so in a way, its obscurity was an advantage, especially because it was made in such a way that it did not assume you knew anything. It was not doing little callbacks to continuity that, you know, are in-jokes and only the diehards would understand. Like, it was 
its own thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I thought it would be expensive and no one would have heard of it. And that didn't have any stars. And these all worked in its favor because nobody was commanding star money for this movie. I mean, yes, it had Bradley Cooper, but I don't think they paid him that much to be the voice right. of a raccoon. You know. Yeah, and Vin Diesel, I mean, he's and actually a pretty well-paid star himself. He's a well-paid star himself, but I don't think they paid him that much by yeah, Vin Diesel were, money to course, say I am Absolutely Groot. not. Um, although I saw this amazing footage of how dedicated he was to I am Groot in that he apparently recorded, and I saw a video of him doing this, recorded all the Groot voice wearing stilts <laughs> because he felt that in order to get in character as a seven foot tall tree man, he needed to be seven feet tall himself. Yeah. If it makes you hey, happy, listen, if you it know? makes you happy, Grin, Vin Diesel, acting, like, go for it. Acting. Um, and, you know, but instead, what really, I think, connected with people and connected with, with a lot of my friends is, and, you know, just people on the internet I was talking to about it, was that it brought something to the movie theaters that was really not, nobody else was bringing this summer. Mm -hmm. It right. brought a really big, feel-good, but not stupid spectacle. It wasn't like Sharknado 2. Yeah, right. I mean, which I loved. But it was not Sharknado 2. It was made with love and care, even though it wasn't supposed to be like an Oscar movie. It was written with an actual script and characterization and so on. It was a well-made movie that was fun. That was it was a fun action adventure movie that um, everyone could get behind. Right. It, it, it That's did right. Not, it was not. That's right. And you know, it, yeah. I mean, it was it was totally fresh. I I, I mean, I think I, I mean I absolutely agree with what what you're saying. Um, I I think really what we have to look at is though Kevin Feige, you know, the, and Marvel Studios. I mean, what a triumph for them and the marketing campaign for this movie. They should, marketed it perfectly. They, it proves how a really good trailer will do. And it should everything. be studied for. They should years study that trailer for years. Come, because, they should not copy it, but they yeah, should study it. They, I mean, you can't replicate it but i mean even from a year ago when they released the first trailer at comic-con when they had the lineup scene which isn't in the movie by the way you know well actually they they didn't have a couple lines from it but they did have right lineups but right 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 but yes they did but you know in the lineup they have drax but they don't have him you know like the the the, the trailer like most of the scenes in that first trailer that captured our imagination so strongly with the music and everything are, are you know which is very common it's altered the film but the point is from the moment that trailer with hooked on a feeling came out that trailer captured a feeling it was hooked on a feeling and that, that did not come out a year ago though that came out last fall it the, came, the hooked on a feeling one didn't. When did that come out? Oh, that came out in January. That came out in January. But the original one early. with the lineup and the what a bunch of a holes. Yes, was last summer. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I mean every but but, but they, they led up to it very very well. They led up to it well. They captured. Well, they did what a lot of trailers fail to do, which is they correctly captured the tone of the movie in the trailer. Yes. That they didn't try to make it into something that it wasn't. So you didn't go into the theater and go, that's not the movie I was right. sold. And you know, one of the things about Marvel, I also pointed this out, but you know, James Gunn is an indie filmmaker. They've been kind of trying to position this as, oh, look, it's the cool indie Marvel movie. You know, this movie costs $170 million. Now, I'm not, I don't know exactly what went on with it, but I would not be too surprised if after the initial reaction was so good on this that they poured more money into it because I think it wasn't meant to be 
uh, at quite as as lavish as it ended up being because the CGI was way better than any other Marvel movie I've seen. You well, know, recently they, they really had to double down on the CGI because basically everything was CGI. Right, right, right. You know, but I mean, you know, okay, to get okay, I was also just watching Thor two. Well, I, I, they had that awesome stars preview, and like you know, Thor two is like. Uh, Saturday morning well, cereal. Well, Thor 2, <laughs> interestingly enough, they thought would be a much bigger hit than it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did make a lot of money, but by Marvel standards, right. at the time of year they brought it out, it did not. Right. Because um, it looked cheesy. It was it, a very cheesy, silly movie. Well, I think it was that it did not get, it got very good opening weekend, mm-hmm. but it didn't get a lot, uh, the after numbers that Captain America 2 did, which if you compare them on uh, Box Office Mojo, even though... Thor 2 came out at a very strong time of year mm-hmm. for movies, and Captain America came out at a traditionally weak time of year for movies, Captain America 2, which cost the same amount to make, made more money. But if you compare the two films story-wise, that's but what... that's why. But, but Be- that's exactly what I was, I was going to say. I mean, Thor 2, I think I compared that to a, a Wong Jing Hong Kong movie. It's like, basically, you have these really cool characters who do awesome things, and they run around because there's some kind of threat, and things happen, and then there's one guy who has no pants which is actually a feature of every Wong Jing movie. Uh, and uh, then there's a big fight at the end and everybody's happily ever after. Right. But, it's, but it's just so generic. It was so generic and slapdash, a story. It was, it was that it was not written with a lot of care. It right. didn't get the people coming back to watch it the second time That's because right. it was that cool. Right. Whereas because it wasn't super cool visually and it wasn't super cool story-wise. Exactly. It was just sort of a, if we slap Thor on this label, people will right. come. Now, whereas and... with Captain America 2, the minute I watched it in the theater, I was like, wow. I this would is great. Sit, I would sit down and watch this again. I was yeah. like, I'm going to download this yeah, from I'm the internet <laughs> right this minute and watch it again, um, which I did not do, by the way. I don't approve of piracy. But, but um, I am buying the DVD. But I ASAP. am going to get the DVD. Yes, um, because and people came back. The yeah. numbers of yeah. people coming back and people telling people, other people by word of mouth, "This is a good one. You should now, see it." Yeah. Um, and on that note, that's really happening with Guardians. Guardians had like astonishingly high Monday night vi- mm-hmm. viewing rates right. of people who missed it on the weekend, heard about how awesome it was, came in and bought tickets on monday yes now that said it's like and i enjoyed the movie very much i do think it was flawed i don't think it's quite as great as everybody seems to be saying but but i I think what you you talked about what we've all said is the freshness of it i think people are just hungry to see something that makes them feel like they did when they were a kid but it isn't what they saw when they were a kid you know teenage mutant ninja turtles by michael bay which got like you know, 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a Michael Bay movie, but it was number one. And they said the audience was actually like uh, much older than anticipated because so many people who loved Turtles the first time came back to see it again. So, you know, with this nostalgia value, like, like you know, we shouldn't underestimate it, but, I, but Guardians created new nostalgia right away. And, you know, I knew it was going to be a hit. When I saw it the days before it opened, I already saw like, like memes about the characters and about the themes and everything that were like, you know, classic internet memes. Like it had already become so iconic before people even saw the movie that they were, you know, it just slid right in. I mean, well, I feel like (laughs) that it did not require nostalgia. It it was its own thing. And a lot of, a huge amount of credit goes to the writer, Nicole Perlman, who is, uh, this is her first big movie. She went in through the Marvel Writers Development Program, um, and they said, you know, here's a list of properties. What do you want to do? And she said, 
Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, yeah. Give me Guardians well, of the Galaxy. Well, it's interesting. Actually, the Nicole Perman situation is very interesting because, uh, you know, apparently it was completely rewritten by James Gunn to be more comedic, but uh, apparently there are a lot of the elements of it that, that she had. So, right, but you know, then, until then we they see brought the... her in for a second rewrite. Anyway, it's a it's a group product is, between her and is, James Gunn. It is interesting. It is. An, I would like to see the two drafts. Let's put it I that would, way. I, there are three drafts, and I want to see all of them. Yeah. Um, but that works. That works. Yeah. That, um, because it had both elements. It was funny, but you got the impression it cared about its characters, that they weren't just a one-note joke. But didn't you feel, though, speaking of one-note, though, didn't you feel the flaw in the movie was that it had yet another mystical cosmic cloud villain who had this vague i hate love doing bad things motivation well, I, I, I mean i, I, I mean ronan like... was no better than malekith really well actually ronan made somewhat more sense than malekith because ronan was not killing his own people yes. and for Lee no Pace, good reason Lee pace was also way better than but i do Eccleston. feel like if they had given and maybe this got cut who knows if they had given uh two or three sentences mm-hmm. of dialogue to ronan about why he's doing what he's doing Right. He had about half a sentence that was like half an explanation. And if they give him like right. a couple more lines explaining why he's doing what he's doing. Because from what we've heard, it sounds like his reasoning was the reasoning in the comics. And if he had just had a couple sentences to say this right. to the audience, right. that would have helped. Right. Um, this is not the kind of movie that deeply needs that. But it certainly would have been a plus. But you know, I think that kind of, I think that kind of depth actually does um, really help movies become more lasting you know lasting favorites and you know i mean i think it, it would have i think it would have added depth and it certainly yeah. would not have hurt the movie in any way and would have been a plus right. because you wouldn't have needed to lard up the movie with a whole bunch of other scenes for it you could have just given him his villain soliloquy moved right, on right right now what do you think the other thing that people have talked about a little bit is um you know gamora being a, a stereotypical strong female character i mean how do you feel about that well i mean i feel like they could have I mean, they did give her her own motivation, which had right. nothing to do with anyone else on screen. And in fact, Gamora's the one who starts the plot about, mm-hmm. like, who's like, oh my God, now that I know what this is, the MacGuffin, right. we must get the MacGuffin out of the wrong hands. But there's this whole thing with her and Nebula where they should have given them a little more screen time to explore it. Yes. And I think much can be said about the advantage of Guardians of the Galaxy cutting very cleanly and not going to a bloated length like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. Um, but I think they cut a little too strongly right. that they should have given these important secondary characters a couple more scenes to explore their motivations or at least a few more lines to explore their motivations and it would have added depth. But I don't... I actually did not have as many Gamora problems. I just... I do feel like... I feel like what... what, what I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, Kate. But... I was going to say that that they should have given her a couple more scenes exploring her right. issues. Right, right. Which she had... I mean, they give but, her but, a good but, plot but, but I think, before I, I... they got into um, the flirting scenes. Right. I think what you're... Both of these, these flaws that we're talking about are really just... Uh, you know they are scripting flaws, and, and they're writing problems. They're, they're writing problems, and and they're minor writing they're, problems. They're minor but they're problems, easily but, fixed. but they're easily fixed. And I, I wish, you know, I do think it's a, you know, I mean, I left the theater wanting more. You know, I mean, we, I don't think there's so much more about Rocket that we haven't learned, and you know, I mean, I thought Drax had a wonderful character arc, and everybody paid no attention to him, but you know, he turned out to be like, you know, Drax was perfect. He was great. I, I, he was I, so I, I did cool. not think they were going to explore him properly, but they, the. 
it was note perfect. It and, was, and, the, and you know, and, a lot of people had Gamora issues, but I liked her fine. I thought yes. the story arc was good. And it he, just needed more and exploration. And I love. Let me just say this right now. I love Zoe Saldana. You know, she's been in so many. Huge she's so hits. good. She's been in Avatar, Star and, Trek, and, and now Guardians. Somebody of the asked her like, "Why are you in so many movies in space?" And her answer was, "There are better parts in space." Mm-hmm. Yeah, she and she's often a thankless task. She plays kind of the same character. She in does so not. many movies. Well, I'm just saying, like a lot of times, like she's been the badass assassin, but. I just love her. She's so great. And she's really good. She's really good. And, and I felt like they gave her a slightly different uh, narrative arc and a little more to work with in Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. um, where instead of just being like the either just like a, a killing machine or a good girl who's like, hi, I'm here to assist you. Uh, they they gave her uh slightly more fleshed out they did they did they did so you know i think and i think i'm I'm glad to hear you say that because i mean i you know i'm always gonna nitpick 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 but but i i overall like i said this movie left me wanting more of all the characters and you know guardians they guardians of the galaxy 2 like before the movie even opened they announced the sequel because disney and marvel knew they had a hit on their hands yeah and Um, i really like the character designs for the movie yeah, yeah yes everything was good to look at but they didn't like you totally believed Gamora as a hardened space traveler dash criminal, and you know she was not wearing any less than anybody else. In fact, um, the male hero was yeah, wearing right. less than anybody right. else. Well, that's the standard of all uh, Marvel movies, and and you know credit that's, credit to them. They credit always to have, them. They, they get always it right. have male cheesecake in their films. Well, and they they got very... it wrong on Iron Man too. Well, that's um, Robert Downey Jr. We don't want to see him. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, their their initial stab at Black Widow costuming was not so great, but they recovered. Yes, they did. They did. So uh, anyway, but, you know, there's so much more. We could probably do a whole podcast about Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yes. I have something to say that I think is indicative of how much money it's going to make. I have a theory that you know how much a movie is both beloved and going to have legs in the long term of something people love and remember by how much merch they sell mm-hmm. within the first couple yes. weeks. For example, you could not find an Elsa Frozen toy. You still can't find an Elsa Frozen toy because they just sell out like hotcakes. And I was at Target in the toy section. And aside from the really ugly 12-inch figures that nobody wants, all the Guardians of the Galaxy was sold out. And this was not a badly stocked Target because they had all the Spider-Man stuff. <laughs> that wasn't sold mm, out. Right. Uh, the Transformers stuff was was uh, thinned out a bit, but not completely sold out. Guardians of the Galaxy, you couldn't get it. You just couldn't get really? it. It wasn't there. But you know what? All the little action figures totally I, gone. You know what? Except it's for the ugly 12 inches. so cool to hear this because I think the, the, what the Guardians of the Galaxy also does in a bigger, even bigger form is it really taps into the imagination of comics it really does. in a way that so few films so few of these comic book movies have done you know maybe the sam raimi movies in some ways the spider-man films um you know avengers and others but guardians of the galaxy really thinks big it they thinks went, big they went with it you know i mean i never ever in a billion years thought i'd be saying that you know there's a movie and everyone in america is talking about infinity gems now i mean it's crazy you know it's just crazy how they took these comics concepts and they just and went big. They just and said this can work. And now let me segue from that to across the lot, across yes. Burbank Boulevard in in Burbank. Uh, even as Disney has been celebrating, and um, as well they should, as well they should. You know, DC has been. What shall we do next? 
<laughs> and you know, I, a, a lot of people said that that DC won San, San Diego with their Superman Batman footage, and and so you know what, I, Wonder Woman reveal, you know, in high heels, which is awesome because you know we're very active and athletic in high heels. Um, the rest of the costume was good. The it heels, was it was good. I I'm not sold in Gal Gadot to be honest, but she's no I'm Zoe. More, she's no Zoe Saldana. I'm, let's put it this way: <laughs> I'm more sold on her than the rest of the elements of this yes. movie, which is not saying a lot. Well, a- anyway, so so Warner Brothers, you know, I, I I was chided online for suggesting that you know there's competition between Disney and Warner Brothers, and I'm of like, course are there you is. Freaking joking they are so competitive with one another how, how and, do you not un- yeah, and, yeah. and obviously they are looking at you know what marvel now you know marvel announced a blank slate of movie dates okay and then they had uh captain america on this uh may 1st or may first week of may uh the free comic book day slot basically and um dc or warner brothers had uh batman v superman dawn of justice league and uh, on the same day, and Warner same, Brothers. Oh my God! Warner Brothers moved. <laughs> Warner Brothers moved. Uh, blinked and moved it to March. Now that smart. scene, it smart. is smart. That scene is a little less prestigious. But anyway, Marvel released a whole slate of dates, and then uh, DC Warner Brothers came right back with their own blank slate of dates. They said we're doing a movie on this date, and it does sort of line up a little bit with a list that was leaked to Nikki Fink a few a few months ago. Um, so what we believe might be on this this list is possibly a a um, possibly a Wonder Woman movie, possibly a Shazam movie, uh, possibly a uh, you know definitely a Justice League movie. We know that. I um, think the reason that they and Marvel left those slots blank is because even now they're not sure what they're going to put there. Well, they have a couple things they're looking at, but I don't think they're committed because. Well, Yes. I think they're going to watch but, how the market reacts. But, you know, the fundamental problem is that you have at Marvel, this is the problem that, that Warner Brothers cannot surmount at this point. At Marvel, you have Kevin Feige, who is so invested in this material, and he knows it inside and out, and he's a visionary. i got to give Feige so he's much He's a visionary. Pre- he's a visionary. He saw Guardians of the Galaxy, that this could be a mega franchise and could just open the door for so many things. You know, we all turned against him when Edgar Wright left, but, um, you know... We'll see how much well, money these make, and we are know. talking about... I mean, about... just because there are mistakes at Marvel Studios, I mean, it's not perfect. It's not flawless. It's not... Yeah, and Feige is not the only person right. in charge let there. Me, let, me, let me finish my thought, okay? Okay. Uh, so, but he's a great front man, and, you know, you have Joe Quesada coming out when needed to talk about this, and obviously Disney is wholly on board. Now, over at Warner Brothers... Who do we have to be our so yes we know david goyer we were talking about this a few weeks ago when he was caught on a podcast making fun of martian manhunter like and, mocking martian and manhunter. by caught we don't mean that there was some leaked outtakes or anything no this was he was just flat out saying what a air. dumb character martian manhunter was okay yeah so obviously and that anyone who liked this dumb character was clearly a virgin right which... right yes which is the oldest trick in the book so yeah. so you know at this hall h presentation for batman v superman dawn of justice we uh i was wondering chris hardwick came out and introduced the footage and then i was saying to myself who was going to come out on stage who's going to come out and be the the flag bearer for this franchise and who will t- step up and it turned out to be Zack snyder and uh Zack snyder was um okay so who's going to come out and who's going to represent warner brothers with this it's Zack snyder and you know he's a perfectly lovely fellow but i have to be honest he is not the most 
uh, deft spokesman. I think that's very fair to say. I actually like him as a filmmaker a lot better than most people do, but he's not the most like crazily articulate and wonderful spokesman. Um, and yet, we saw just the other day some radio station was making fun of Aquaman, and who calls up to defend Aquaman but Zack Snyder? So he has evidently been given the role as the defender of DC's comic book movies. And, you know, as far as David Goyer, you know, as the David Goyer, I mean, yes, let's have someone who actually likes and cares about the characters being your spokesman. I think that's a very good decision. But, um, you know, there's a little bit of a void here. I don't think that, uh, you know, Zack Snyder v. Kevin Feige, um, you know, we're, we're the, the jury's out on that one. The... <laughs> Um, well, the thing is, I don't even know that they really gave that role to Zack Snyder or if he just stepped up. Um, you know, you wonder who's driving this ship at Warner Brothers. Like, it, it really, I've noticed that when you have in comics, um, like a group of related titles, if you don't have one group editor steering them all in the same direction, things get very confused and tangled. Um, and I can only imagine how much more so it is like that with movies. Right, right, exactly. And uh, they need someone to be the Denny O'Neill of movies. They do. They do. Well, they need. Well, they need to have someone who could really uh, not make fun of Martian Manhunter. You know, and they need someone to believe in Martian Manhunter. How Wonder Woman? They need someone to believe in Shazam. I mean, how hard is there anyone at Warner Brothers actually believes in the film potential of these characters? <laughs> who, who has managed to actually get into? a major position. Yeah, they don't even really need to be the executive. Yeah. They just need to be the mouthpiece. Well, you know, on the other hand, Kate, you know, they did announce a new, uh, a whole new bunch of movies for these characters just the other day. But, oh, they're animated. Yes, that's right. They're directed video. They're doing a great job over there with their directed video animated movies that have all the characters in them and seem to be doing pretty well. And, I mean, you know, they're not huge sellers. They're not million sellers. I mean, they're sort of a small, small ticket and, item. And they're not linking it in to their franchise on the big screen. That's right. And uh, so anyway, I, you know, this is, this is, WB's got a ways to go. They announced, uh, these are the movies that Nikki Fink said they'd be doing. Batman v Superman, Shazam, Sandman, Justice League, Wonder Woman, and then a Flash and Green Lantern team up, uh, and followed by Man of Steel. And, um, you know, Metal Men they've been talking about, but who yeah, knows? Yeah, and, so. and a while ago they said they were developing a Sandman movie for the big screen. That's right. But, you know, the Dark Horse is uh, Guillermo del Toro is developing the Dark JLA movie with the Spectre and uh, all those wonderful characters. So that I would, I'm sold that, on that. If that, that movie, if they if sold, they If sold. they let it happen, if, yeah. if they let it happen and it happens and Guillermo stays on board, right? that'll be a good movie. Now, meanwhile, over at the Sony Ranch, uh, Sony, not to be outdone, also mm. said, we're doing our slate of unnamed movies that we don't even yes. say what they are. But they said that in a f- brilliant, whoever came up with this PR uh, stunt was a genius. They, they said, are. They said, in 2017, we're doing a female-led superhero movie. There you sit on that, Marvel and Warner Brothers. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's incredible. Wow, I believe that. That is so concrete and definite. Well, the way they put it is that they're... Um, Somehow, some female character who's linked into their Spider-Man license right. is going to have a movie. And I think, I think they know who this character is, and I think they're just trying to tease and build up suspense. Who do you think it is? Um, well, I'm not sure. Uh, there, a lot of people are saying Spider-Woman. Some people are saying Black Cat. Uh-huh. 
Um, seems to be one of those two. Some people are saying Firestar, but I don't think anyone knows from Firestar. I think it's Black Cat or Spider Woman. One or the I other. wish they'd do Spider Girl. They might do Spider Girl. I they think, might do I Spider Girl. Spider the... Girl would link in a lot better, but I don't know if they're creative enough I to like do that. I like the Latina Spider Girl, not the yeah, daughter uh, of Peter uh, Parker. Aranya. Yeah, Aranya. Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 you know, with all the female, with all the teenage girl movies doing so well right now it just seems like a no-brainer that to me seems like a no-brainer it doesn't have to be 170 million dollars just do a small 40 million dollars and the nice thing about spider heroes is that they're relatively (laughs) they're relatively they do whatever a spider can yeah yeah that too that too (laughs) is they're relatively ground level and if you don't like go all out on the villains and the villain character design you stick to one of the cheaper to make villains it's relatively cheap to film you, you just need, you know, the character and uh, some acrobat who can play the character in costume with their face completely covered. That's right. And uh, you're good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I could see a Spider-Girl. I, I Listen, if you're listening, Fox, if you're, excuse me, Sony, Sony if you're listening, Spider-Girl, I'm telling you, you could sell that shit, homie. You can do it. You can do it. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's it. And no, I, I believe them. I believe them because yeah. I don't think they would say it if they weren't going to do it because they know they get dinged if they didn't. I yeah, think they in, got a plan in three years. So we'll see. We'll see. But well, yeah, I mean, but I, you I think you got to develop it. I, hopefully, and whatever. hopefully you're right. Hopefully you're right about that. But anyway, yeah. So a lot going on. And then, like I said, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had a horrible film by all accounts. Uh, still number one. A sequel announced. So you know what, peeps? Comic book movies are not going anyway. So speaking of things that are going away. Studio Ghibli, Ghibli. maybe we don't Uh, know. We should speak Japanese. So a lot of conflicting reports here. Well, yeah, quasi conflict. There's a lot of Japanese criminology going on about this. About um, what does it mean when they interviewed Hayao Miyazaki, who was you know the big man at Ghibli, retired now. You know, asking him, you know, aren't you concerned for the future of Ghibli? Aren't you concerned what's going to happen without you there? You know, why did you not stay on a little bit? And he said, basically, I don't care. (laughs) 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 Nice. That um, it's just a name. People will continue to make animated movies. Does it matter if they call it Ghibli or not? And then walked off. You know, having seen his films, uh, that is a very fitting response. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the seasons shall flow. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to know where to begin here. It's, it really is, you know, I, there's a singular genius and Miyazaki is one and no one's going to make movies like he does at Studio Ghibli, whether it's called Studio Ghibli or Studio Fibli or Miyazaki movies. I mean, you know, it's, it's, what is he going to do? I know that there are other movies from Studio Ghibli that are also excellent. So, I mean, it's, it's sad to to think that they are shutting down. But, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, this magic can't be continued past a past a certain point, you know? Supposedly, Miyazaki-san say, is uh, sitting around drawing manga again, like he did with Nausicaa of the Valley Wind. So Yeah, he's he's decided to move on with his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's earned it, you know? You I know mean, what? who dare say he hasn't? No. I mean, it's, it's interesting the way he phrased it in the interview, one kind of got the subtext that maybe other people had said this to him in the past, like, how can you desert Ghibli? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think he just feels that life goes on and it goes on for him elsewhere. And the thing is that it's not just people speculating because he's going. There have been announcements, very cryptic announcements, made by the current Studio Ghibli executives. 
um, announced that they are considering shutting down or reorganizing their new animated movies department. Um, and then they said something like, well, we're, we're cleaning house. We're, we're not sure what we're going to do next. Whatever we do, we're going to make it easier for newcomers, whatever that means, and new talent, whatever that means. So, cryptic. Um, cryptic. And so experts are saying, <laughs> yes, experts are saying, one, you really need to understand Japanese to understand the subtext here of just how ambivalent they are. They're not announcing they're going to do this. This is not a soft announcement of we're closing this division. This is a genuine, we're not sure what we're doing yet. It's a big old trial balloon. It's a big old, we got no idea, guys. <laughs> Leave us alone. Um, so more to come on that, but it means that there's a very strong possibility that Ghibli, as we know it, is going away. Well, you know, I, listen, to, to understand it, what, 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 what Miyazaki is saying also is that, again, if you create something that cannot outlast you, then it wasn't meant to outlast you, you know? I mean, you have to create something that is structurally and creatively strong enough to, to outlast his involvement. So, well, you know. Well, I mean, I mean it, you don't need to. It could have just been that thing. Like, if it's just the studio that brought us Miyazaki films and then no, it's no longer, that's okay. Yeah. Because it brought us those films and that's right. good. And if it becomes something else, then that's okay too. You know, but it, you obviously can't create a Franken-Miyazaki. Right, exactly. You can't exactly. pretend to be what you were. You have to become something new. Yes. But, but on the other hand, people were having these exact conversations about Walt Disney Studios after Walt Disney died. Yes, but Walt had created a money-making machine that was but, too powerful to but, go on beyond his frozen head. So, But yeah, Walt, Walt Disney had created a company that could outlast him. It hit a number of bumps in the road when it came to their mission statement, but... Uh, it eventually got there. But, you know, I actually, we may have mentioned this on, even here on this podcast before, but uh, Miyazaki and Disney are the exact opposite creators because Miyazaki actually is the one person who has a vision. I mean, he would actually go and physically yeah. correct storyboards. Yeah. You know, his oversight of his films is as close to one person making an animated film. He was he, an auteur. He was an absolute auteur. Whereas Disney from Snow White, had created, you know, the nine old men. He gathered the greatest team that had ever been assembled, you know? And uh, it is the Disney films are the perfect example of the corporate team that creates great art. And they're given the resources and the guidance to sit around and use their talents to the fullest. They're not held back. But, um, you know, it is exactly art by committee versus art by the singular genius. So, you know, that's why Disney survived and why Ghibli is on a little more shaky ground. Yeah. Well, clearly they'll just need to find more geniuses. But given that there are any number of animators who would give their right arm to be the next genius at Ghibli, it's not an impossible proposition. Yeah, but don't you think that, you know, wouldn't you rather be the... The first, um, you know, Studio Juno and not the second Studio Ghibli. I mean, you always be compared to Miyazaki and, you know, that's an unfair comparison. Well, it is an unfair comparison, but I think there are any number of people who would be willing to try the task. Yeah, but, you know, I think... We'll see. We'll see see what they do. We'll see what they do. Well, you know, speaking of walking away and being satisfied with your life, I'm very thrilled that Miyazaki-sensei has that peace of mind to be able to say, I'm going to just sit down at my drawing table and draw these little manga very slowly 
uh, for the rest of my life, you kids do what you want. Um, because, uh, you know, we, we just started the last episode of the of podcast. Uh, we, I interviewed Mike Dawson about his ambivalence about his mid-career and, you know, very sadly kind of tying in with this. Uh, this week we had the death of Robin Williams uh, by suicide, which, of course, stunned. I mean, everybody's been talking about it. And Williams is a great comics fan, you know, very engaged. I mean, he used to go to comic shops long before it was... Um, and he, he named his eldest daughter after his favorite video game. That's right. That's right. And uh, Zelda. Yeah. And uh, no, he was a nerd long before it was fashionable. I mean, as if you'd seen his early work and thought that he wasn't a nerd. But, um, you know, he really was into that. And by all accounts, a wonderful customer and a wonderful, um, you know, supporter of this. And, you know, just sad all around. Um, but, but he and, was not an uncommon geek personality. No. I mean, we for some, whatever reason, the comic book industry and the geek world as a whole attracts a lot of people who are unhappy in the wider world well, who have mood uh, no you see i don't know if you just it's greater openness about it or a greater sense of community that we just hear about it more or if you know it it gives people a way for a short period of time to escape from their problems but there is no shortage of comic creators who share Williams's problems. Well, I mean, that's what I was just about to say, is that certainly in the wake of his death, we've seen a lot of talk about depression. And, uh, you know, my Facebook feed is nothing but cartoonists talking about their depression. Yeah. There's been some really excellent pieces out by um, Erica Moen has a wonderful comic that's up on the nib. And uh, Melissa Mendez also has a very brave piece josh uh joshua helfialkoff had a great tumblr post about it i mean you know i'm just scratching the surface right now this is really like kind of an outpouring i mean uh especially among i guess indie cartoonists i mean they're not really that you know what i scratched that it's actually very universal you know it's among the creative temperament unfortunately depression is a very common ailment i, and... I think depression is is something that in fact drives people to create in order mm -hmm. to try to understand yeah. it and to try to work around it yeah and um yeah, so there's a big outpouring of people uh, talking right. about That's it. That's right. And I mean, I think the talking is very, very healthy and, um, you know, very healing, I think, for a lot. I think there's a lot of good coming out of all the talk that, that's being yeah. discussed. And, and uh, I mean, I, I was, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a joke. We call this depressed poor cartoonists. But, uh, I mean, just uh, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, in the wake of Dawson's uh, yeah. post and I mean he's not poor let's make this really clear right, right. Just, Mike pointed this out but I just again every time we bring this up you know he points out he has a good day job he is not reliant on his comics for to make no. a living and he is um, you know he is satisfied he is in search of an audience you know there was a post by Sam Henderson as a wonderful cartoonist who was uh, also kind of following up on Dawson's where he talked a little bit more he does not have a day job his day job is writing comics and and little cartoons he worked on Spongebob Squarepants and his post is is also pretty frank and pretty pretty self you know self uh like self-observant uh, about his own failures at social media, his own failures to try to move forward and find an audience. And I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about this. I think we should uh, pause here to explain what the post was. Um, very quickly, uh, Mike Dawson, who had had two moderately successful, but not as successful as he had hoped, graphic novels, got to his third one and had many fewer. Right, he did. And, and I was think, discussing... I don't, I don't think... Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to rerun it too much because we have all of last week's podcast. Yeah, but, but he was talking about how, you know, he's fail, he felt that he had failed to find an audience yes. because his sales of his graphic novel were only 400 copies. And yes. uh, anyway, but I mean, I and, think... And his search for how to find more people to at least 
listen to his ideas. I don't think he was even searching. I think he was more just kind of putting out a, a cry into the world and saying, why aren't you reading my comics? What did I do well, wrong? Well, no, but he, he, he was saying that, that he was finding more people to at least read something from him on Tumblr, but he was not sure what to do for his longer comics. But, you know, by the end of the week, Mike was happy because more people were talking about his book. Yeah. So, anyway. I mean, I think... Well... But, I, you know, I think when you read things like Sam Henderson and... Uh, some of the other posts that have come out about this and you know I mean this is more of a big general observation there are a lot of depressed cartoonists there are a lot of financially stressed cartoonists and I think it's always been a little bit of a faux pas to point this out that the comics industry is it's still not that financially rewarding you're supposed to be happy just if you get a lot of tumble reboots reposts and uh, retweets and everything and uh, you know I think this is coming out more I think this is kind of maybe breaking the silence that needed to be broken yeah. and it's not just a financial silence but an artistic one yes that exactly if the sad truth which Dawson discovered is if you are not a promoter people will not know your comics that exist is absolutely right and one of the main mistakes that he made was he quit shut down his Twitter feed and then came back and couldn't rebuild his same audience. And, you know, I'm going to throw this out here just as advice for people. You know, it, I have rebuilt my website three times. Three, uh, well, twice. Twice I've had to completely uh, new URL, rebuild my audience from scratch, okay? And uh, the first time I lost some audience, but then it came back bigger than before. Uh, the second time I lost some audience, it came back, but not quite as big as before, but still pretty steady. And if you said to me now, uh, well, let's relaunch again, I wouldn't do it. There's no way in four years' time that I could pop. Yeah. There's so much more competition in four times. You, and so, and my advice, people, if you have any audience, do not throw it away. Keep you, it. You cannot rebuild from scratch on the internet anymore. I mean, you can, but why would you? Yes. Why would you do that? And furthermore, you know, it's some of his concern was, you know, why is it that I need to have this social media presence for people to buy my comics? And the answer is, these days, there are a lot of comics out there. And even some of the people commenting were like, I'm a fan of his. I didn't even know he had a third yeah. graphic novel. It's sad but true that you need to but put you yourself know, some, out there. But some people, aren't, some people aren't as outgoing. What should they do? Well, the nice thing about the comics internet is you don't actually need to be talky. You know, if you're an artist, you just put out your little cartoon of whatever. And you don't even need to, like, make friends with people. You just need to, like, put out a few dribbles of content of, like, you know, take a picture of your cat. Take a picture of your 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 thing. Like, show a few panels of your new work. Something to let people know the yeah. work exists. But, but, you know, to you be, don't need to be friendly. To be, no, but to be fair, a lot of people don't understand that language. No. Themselves. There's, you know... Yeah. Anyway, listen, we have a couple briefs this week. Uh, it's okay. Take it away. Okay. So one for me, one for you. The Japanese government is cracking down on manga and anime piracy. They, um, they started out with a bang. They sent in the Japanese equivalent of a SWAT team wow. on a gentleman who was uploading the 10th volume of Attack on Titan, a 35-year-old man in Ishikawa Prefecture. And, I mean, they they brought him out in handcuffs. I mean, they made a big show of it. And they have announced that they're, they've added a new division of their law enforcement specifically to go after piracy. They're taking this very <laughs> seriously. 
I mean, we don't know how big the division is. It may be five guys, but still. <laughs> five so, guys is more than zero. Five guys is more than zero. Still, um, they have decided that they are losing, the Japanese industry is losing too much money to piracy, and they're going to make a good fifth effort to stomp it out. Well, good luck with that. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Also, we'll see uh, San Diego Comic-Con is suing Salt Lake City Comic-Con. And, uh, oh, how exciting. Exactly. And I have read uh, their complaint, and it really is that Comic-Con Salt Lake City is treading on their copyright. Uh, By using a hyphen. Um, yes, that's about what I was about to say, actually, is that even though they're not using a hyphen, actually Comic-Con San Diego really? has uh, Comic-Con, Comic-Con, um, uh, has Comic-Con uh, trademarked with a hyphen. Salt Lake City has used it without a hyphen. And uh, so some people are wondering on what basis they have this. Now, I understand that what really tipped them off on this is when Salt Lake City had a car skinned with Salt Lake City Comic Con and was driving around at San Diego Comic Con promoting their own show. And I understand that what also has people ticked off is that Salt Lake City Comic Con has been completely uh full of hot air about their attendance figures, which they're like, oh, we had 100,000 people. We're the third biggest Comic-Con now. It's bull crap. It's not true. Uh, If you look, they admit that they estimated, not only did they estimate those numbers, but they gave away tickets and counted counted all the tickets they gave away as attendance as well. So anyway, I understand that just because Salt Lake City has really been pushing this kind of narrative uh, that a lot of people have gotten mad at them, I'm not sure this lawsuit uh, will go too far, to be honest, but it sure created a little bit of a, um, you know, it tapped the brakes. Okay. Um, well, it seems like dirty pool. Like, I'm annoyed at this Comic-Con, so I'm going to sue them over this vaguely spurious thing. I mean, there are a lot of Comic-Cons out there calling themselves something or other Comic-Con without a hyphen, including New York Comic-Con. I mean... Is this really somewhere San Diego Comic-Con wants to go with this? Well, like I said, I feel that I, what I'm hearing is that they felt that um, well, I mean, that yeah, Salt I'll, Lake City Comic-Con had done things that were dirty pool first. So Yes. Were they annoying? Yes. But on the other hand, this kind of seems like the 500-pound gorilla. I mean... Well, it's interesting. You know, we talked in our last podcast about San Diego, where we did our big uh, wind-up about things changing there a little bit, and... Um, it's pretty, uh, you know, we mentioned, we all mentioned that we felt that the organization that runs Comic-Con was being a little bit more assertive about certain elements of the show. And you know what? This is one of those things that we were talking about. So I'm sure there's more to come on this. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I I don't, I think, I I don't disagree with you, Kate. I mean, it it does look like a pretty bizarre move on, uh, on San Diego's part. So, but, um, you know, I'll be very curious to see how long this suit lasts. We shall see. There will be more to come. There will be more to come. And so now... uh, Over to Calvin. uh, Over to Calvin. Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. We're going to do something a little different this week. Uh, I'm not in the office with my co-hosts, Kate and Heidi, but I am in the Rockaways. Uh, Actually, I'm on vacation. So I'm here uh, with... At Jody Culkin, uh, not only my wife, but also uh, the PW Comics World photographer. You've seen her pictures in Photomania. Uh, welcome to More to Come, Jody. 
Hello, everyone. I mean, I don't have to welcome you because actually you've kind of been here all along. But anyway, <laughs> this is kind of the first time they've heard your voice. Well, I'm happy to be on the show. So we're going to do a very quick rundown of, since we're on vacation, of comics that we're reading on vacation. Okay? Uh, obvious, but it works for us. Uh, if I should say so, the Rockaways is a really great place to vacation. Anyway, the first thing we're reading, um, the first thing I'm reading is Scott McCloud's The Sculptor. This book is not coming out till February. We've talked about it on the podcast before, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But it really is his first work of fiction in many years. The author of, of uh, the trio of, of comics theory radical works, um, uh, understanding comics, uh, reinventing comics, making comics. His first work of fiction, and it's the story of a sculptor who's kind of given a, uh, who makes a, basically makes a deal with death to be able to do whatever he wants. So we'll see. It's a book about love. It's a book about the compulsion to make art. And it's also a book about the relentless approach of death. So we can't wait to see. Uh, it won't be out until February, uh, but we've got a galley now. And Jody actually saw his presentation at Comic Con, which I did not see. Yeah, Scott did a really, a really quite wonderful presentation at Comic Con, where he did a reading, a kind of a stage reading with his family, uh, his wife and his two daughters, uh, reading different parts of the the book, as well as, you know, Scott does very well-prepared presentations, and he talked about his uh, approach to creating comics. But the um, the uh, presentation was particularly touching to hear his wife play a character who was, frankly, uh, according to Scott, you know, based on her, um, and uh, hear Scott talk about his wife and um, how he felt about her and how he has written about her and um, her younger self in um, in this book. It was yeah. great. It's also a packed hall, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right? it, yeah. Was. Yeah. it was. It uh, was. You couldn't get in yeah. if you hadn't been waiting in line for quite a long time. The other book we're going to be talking, uh, we just want to bring to mention here is um, uh, also uh, just as Scott, uh, Scott's book will be published by is first, second, Cory Doctorow and Jin, and Jin Wang, a book called In Real Life. Um, uh, Cory Doctorow needs no introduction. Jin Wang um, is the author of Coco Be Good, also published by First Second. Uh, a confession to make, uh, Jin Wang's uh, did an early web comic called Strings of Fate, and that comic, along with Fred Gallagher's, Fred Gallagher's Mega Tokyo uh, and, and Faith Aaron Hicks' Demonology 101, were, were actually my introductions to web comics. So there, I, I dated myself, no doubt, in them too. Uh, but that's a book to look forward to coming, um, I believe, in the fall, maybe further away in real life. It's a, a look at a gamer, uh, a, a girl gamer, who online connects with a young kid from China who is sort of mining this RPG that she loves. Uh, he's able to kind of mine the, the money units quicker and sell it to Western kids. So this is a really interesting look at gaming, how it plays out in the real world and how it plays out in the virtual world. Um, uh, the other book we're going to be looking at, uh, actually, one of the comics I've been looking at is the Vertigo Quarterly. I mean, it's themed CMYK, uh, the color format production for printing. But really, it's an amazing collection and anthology of short stories by a really incredible selection of comics. Uh, the one that's out now, the theme is a magenta, and it's sort of, of that, that, that color or non-color flows through all the stories. Give it a look if you can. Um, check out, in particular, a story called Who is Uber? 
by Carla uh, uh, Baracall. Jim Pockets by Annie Mock and Dawson Walker is another story that looked like a really touching, uh, beautifully illustrated um, transgender um, narrative. Um, uh, Pink Slumber by Fabio Moon, also a member of the, uh, a part of the anthology. Uh, a really, uh, the story about a conversation by the, between a man and, and a woman. Um, and it really is kind of the art of conversation, the kind of the art of connecting with the person or connecting if you're a man with a woman uh, on that, on that, that plane of like pure intellect. Uh, uh, not that sex isn't uh, hinted at as well. Um, also, what we're looking at um, while we're on vacation here, the death of Archie, the trade paperback that kind of collects the big media story that happened prior to Comic-Con, where Archie basically steps up. Uh, uh, it's called the death of Archie. We'll see uh, in comic book world. We'll see whether that actually continues. Um, and... And we're drawing this to a close. We have also been reading the galleys of Gabrielle Bell's The Truth is, uh, Truth is Fragmentary. Um, her book, The Voyeurs, was the PW uh, um, best book of the year, among the best books of the year last year. Uh, once again, her incredibly obsessive self-examinations are on display with uh, uh, an equally eccentric and <laughs> engaging a style of drawing. A little darker version of her narratives now. It's not quite the same as Lucky. Uh, Jody's been reading it too. Um, yeah, what do you think? The stories are really uh, the drawings are beautiful. The storytelling is really great. Um, I particularly liked her trope of using, and, and she has a set of stories. A lot of it is about her travels as a comics artist, going to various conventions and being on panels. And one is in Columbia, and she uses this trope of um, from the university. Uh, from, oh no, Columbia. No, no, Columbia, the country. The country yeah. And um, she uses this trope of having a secretary, and the secretary is actually supposedly narrating the story. And it's very, very charming and very funny. And the drawings are beautiful, and um, uh, the storytelling is great. And I particularly liked uh, distancing herself a little bit with this fake, you know, secretary who was supposedly narrating the stories for her autobiographical comics. Yeah, all right. Um, did I leave anything out? We we went through a quick list of some of the books we're reading out here uh, in the Rockaways. Oh, I also read the Fifth Beetle. Which oh, I read the, yet, yeah, oh, and it was the, the Fifth Beetle. Yes, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was beautiful drawings, wonderful pacing, uh, great story, of course. Uh, go. Good. Uh, the Fifth Beetle, uh, the Brian Epstein story by Vivek Tawari, uh, an Eisner Award winning for a reality-based graphic novel. The story of uh, the closeted gay man who discovered and managed the Beatles. And uh, I would like to say one more thing. Go Rockaways. Yes, well, the Rockaways is great. everyone should spend their vacation yeah. here at the Rockaways. All right, so uh, that's uh, Jody and Calvin live from the Playland Motel Bar in the Rockaways um, on vacation reading. Back to the PW offices and Kate and Heidi. Well, it sounds like Calvin's having a great time. Until <laughs> <laughs> next time, when the trio shall return, there's more to come.